Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come hear the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come hear the animal, talking animal, talking animal. This is WMNF, Tampa. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. We're broadcasting remotely in the wake of Hurricane Idalia under the auspices of WMNF with considerable production assistance from Greg Bowers, a.k.a. DJ Spaceship. So my huge thanks to Greg for his help and bear with us. There'll be a few little jagged edges probably along the way today. But my guest today is Mark Myers, founder and executive director of Peaceful Valley Donkey Rescue, based in San Angelo, Texas. The roots of Peaceful Valley can be traced to 1999, when Myers and his wife Amy, then living near Los Angeles, brought home a donkey, Izzy, as a companion for their dog. They fell hard for Izzy, and their balanced affection for her served as a catalyst for the growing awareness of the plight of donkeys nearly everywhere the Myers looked, and their growing inclination to rescue these neglected or abused donkeys. Barely six years later, the Myers had some 250 donkeys living in their place. Fast forward to 2023, Peaceful Valley Donkey Rescue is the largest donkey sanctuary in the U.S. By some viewpoints, the largest rescue of its kind in the world. They also, by the way, rescue wild burrows in peril. Peaceful Valley has accomplished this by thinking big and acting big, functioning as almost a form of corporate franchising. But the product here is better lives for countless donkeys. The San Angelo facility sits on a 172-acre spread, housing about 1,000 donkeys, but this population is fluid. That is, huge numbers of those animals are transferred to Peaceful Valley's numerous satellite adoption centers or to the organization's many sanctuaries, and some donkeys, depending on their condition or the in-house training they've received to enhance their adoption prospects, travel in the other direction. This is all in service of continually finding huge numbers of donkeys forever homes. We'll step into the world of donkeys, the various challenges that donkeys can face, and all the measures that Peaceful Valley Operation takes to mitigate those challenges when I speak with Mark Myers in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. First, a programming note. On the show next Wednesday, September 6th, I'll be joined by Glenn Hatchell, returning for another edition of Ask the Trainer, in which Glenn, the Behavior and Enrichment Manager at the Humane Society of Tampa Bay, answers questions about your dog's behavior or training or your cat's behavior and so on. That's next Wednesday on Talking Animals on WNF. Might want to start thinking about your questions now. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Lisa Ortiz, Director of Housing and Residence Life at Ferris State University in Michigan, which has just launched a pilot program allowing students to live in the dorms with their pets. It's not uncommon for new college students living away from their homes and families for the first time to feel homesick and sometimes experience feelings of anxiety, depression, and isolation. Yet living with the family dog or cat can be a wonderful way to mitigate those feelings. So Ferris State has devoted an entire floor of one of its dorm buildings to try out this new program. School just started there, so we'll see how this experiment is going so far. We'll hear more about this from Lisa Ortiz later in today's show. Right now, though, let's talk donkeys with Mark Myers. Production today is too complicated for us to incorporate phone calls, but I do invite you to join the conversation by emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Mark Myers on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. And again, we're having a 
a little bit of a tricky time in the wake of the hurricane. So if there's a, if there's a couple of rough spots, hopefully we'll just kind of roll with it and uh, we'll, we'll get our donkey conversation in one way or the other for sure. So, well, I'm coming to you from West Texas in uh, the hundred plus heat. So I'm all about tricky situations. <laughs> okay. I got you. So over the 20 years of, of talking with all kinds of folks on this show, one essential narrative that's emerged is one person can make a major difference for a huge number of animals. And that narrative certainly applies here, but there's also a parallel narrative at peaceful Valley. It seems to me, and that's one donkey can make a major difference for a huge number of donkeys. I touched on this briefly in the opening, but would you mind, I'm sure you've recounted this several times and then some, but would you mind taking us back to the earliest days when Izzy entered the picture? Yes. And actually, uh, Izzy, we got Izzy as a companion to a horse. The dog story came out during CNN Heroes, and I I think the writers made a mistake, but my Ah. wife had an old horse that that needed a companion. And uh, so she got Izzy, and we had no donkey experience whatsoever. And she jumped off that trailer. She's about six, seven months old. And it just opened our eyes to a whole new experience. And we started seeing donkeys everywhere. And they were always there. We just never really noticed them. But the ones we saw weren't sweet, cute, and bubbly like our Izzy. And so Amy started buying them. And the first one we got was so mean, it would lunge through the bars and try to bite you. And it had this green nasal infection. And so she bought it. And paid somebody to bring it to the house. And I would sit out every night after work and talk to it. And after $1,500 in vet bills in a few months, it was just as sweet as our, as our Izzy. And we named him Banjo. And then she found two more that had been beaten so severely that if you tried to touch them, they would shake and fall down. Wow. And we fixed those two. And we just kept going until we had about 25 donkeys. And I said, you know, you're going to have to hit the brakes there. We need to find a way to find these things homes because you can't sell them because if you sell them, you don't have any control over where they go. So that's how we founded the Peaceful Valley Donkey Rescue. And the more we saw, the more we needed to do. And so we thought it was a good way to teach our sons who were kindergarten and first grade at the time, um, you know, responsibility. And I guess it worked because now one is an attorney in Dallas and the other one works for the Tucson Power Company in uh, cybersecurity. So I guess some of that responsibility rubbed off on. No, that's really great. And that, that probably partly answers the question I was about to ask, but I'm still going to ask it anyway, because all kinds of people bring donkeys into their lives or onto their farms or wherever that might be. But very few, if any, uh, others are so struck by by their plight and just different examples like that you cited, um, that they take action on their behalf. Why I mean, you said you wanted to provide a lesson to your sons, but that was sort of later. Why do you think you said, hey, we've got to do something, and then it wasn't enough for you to say, hey, we've saved, we've helped five donkeys, but you just kept going and going. What, 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 what drove that? Well, because the first thing everybody says about a donkey is that they're stubborn, and they, that could not be further from the truth. They're so misunderstood. A donkey is a highly intelligent animal. And just because it doesn't want to do what you want it to do does not make it stubborn. A horse will do what you want it to do because you apply pain to it. You put a bar of steel in its mouth and you, you pull that back and it stops. Does that mean it's, it, it's not being stubborn? No, that just means it, it reacts to pain. You put something sharp on your boots and you dig it into its side, it goes forward. A donkey doesn't react that way. A donkey doesn't react to pain. Horses have a flight mentality. If you scare it, it runs away. 
If you scare a donkey, it charges you. It's just a different animal, and people don't understand that about them. And so they want to they, 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 they call them things like stubborn and stupid, which is the exact opposite of what they are. And so I have this great, I just admire him so, so much. And so I just kind of made it my life's mission to make people understand them. And so I spend a lot of time talking to people about donkeys and all they've done for the country. Uh, last year, we opened the Donkey History Museum in Mesquite, where people come in every day. They see that the signs on the road that say Donkey History Museum. They're like, I got to see what this means. And we're educating people every day just on the, the contribution. Donkeys were in this country 178 years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, yet they're considered an invasive species. They're just, they never got their fair shake. And so we, Amy and I sold two businesses um, in 2005 so that we could do this full time. And we've never regretted a day of it. We love every day going to work. Wow, that's quite a tale. Because I, I was, I'm curious about yeah where you had rescued a number of donkeys, and then really continued rescuing them in earnest, obviously. And then there was a certain point where you must have had that conversation. You talk about selling businesses because you you obviously changed your lives professionally. You moved. So what were those conversations like? I mean. That th- those are significant changes and a significant commitment, gigantic commitment. So, what were those conversations like? We were sort of thinking, "Hey, maybe we'll maybe we'll go even further with this." The more we we got involved with donkeys, the bigger the problems that we saw, and we saw that nobody was solving them, especially our federal government. And if you think about how many charities there are that deal with hunger, especially childhood hunger, and there's still kids that go to bed in this country hungry every night. I couldn't be involved with something like that. So we took a look at the donkey situation in this country, and we said, you know what? It's solvable. It really is. But it's going to take a lot. And so what we started working on was we built a ranch in Texas because it's the middle of the country. We built a a ranch in Arizona because it's near the wild donkeys. We built a ranch in um, Virginia because it's the middle of the eastern seaboard. We created a sanctuary system for the donkeys that aren't ready for adoption. We we created the Satellite Adoption Center, where there's roughly 50 locations all across the country where volunteers take our donkeys and adopt them into their local communities. And so together, Amy and I have been married 31 years, and so together we built this this huge system. So we manage 5.5 million acres for all the donkeys in the wild, that aren't federally protected. And now we work with the Bureau land management for all the donkeys that they have a surplus because of all the horses they have in storage that they can't adopt. And so Peaceful Valley is basically single-handedly solving the donkey problem. And she and I decided that money's not everything. We were making money in construction, but we didn't have any fun. And rescuing donkeys is fun. We see a lot of terrible things, but we know we've done a lot of good. And I would rather live a life of doing good and doing it with my wife than living a life where it's all about money. Yeah. So I guess that's the long and short of it. Yeah. And we just no. made that decision a long time ago. Yeah. Well, I want to delve back into some of those other things you alluded to along the way about some of the, the uh, multiple locations and, and how you kind of kept, you know, I think I said in the introduction that, that a lot of the uh, sort of ethos of Peaceful Valley is thinking big and then and then doing big, going big. And then that seemed like that just kept happening. But we'll, maybe we'll come back to that in a moment or two. But 
one thing you just said now just really intrigued me. So tell me about the fun of working with donkeys and helping them and rescuing them. Well, um, when we first got involved with Death Valley, and I was waiting on the memorandum of understanding to be written, I started going out into Death Valley to count the numbers in the herds and where the herds were going and stuff like that. And I drive a Jeep, and I'm a big guy. I'm six foot four, 250 pounds. And you don't sneak up on a donkey, so you don't even try. I'm a professional photographer. I have a big camera with a big lens. And so the first time I got out of my Jeep and I'm walking to take pictures, the Jeanettes that are matriarchal, they, they, they're in a herd and they have their poles with them. So that they see me coming and they would form a circle. They're looking in every direction to make sure they're not being snuck up on the babies from the middle and they're snorting at me and one or two would come and challenge me. The next week I go out there, they see me, they do the same thing. The third week they see me, they stand there and they don't react. The fourth week they ignore me completely. The fifth week, the babies are coming up to me and getting within a few feet because they recognize me. That's a cool job. That's a that, fun job. Yeah. And I, get, I get excellent pictures of donkeys because since they're not afraid of you, they stand there and look at you. So you can get a really good picture of a donkey. Um, and it's interesting, we, Mark, that it take, takes so little time, relatively speaking. It sounds like four, maybe five weeks in, the resistance is gone. The the concern is gone. They're friendly. Yes, and we we don't use we don't chase them or rope them when we catch them. We use self catching traps, and then we take them and we have holding facilities that have to be manned twenty four seven until there's enough caught that the vet can fly herself in and do draw the blood. Well, the person that's sitting there taking care of the donkeys, it's it's boring. You have to clean up after them and feed them, and so you go in the pens with them. And so by the time they're ready to be transported, they're already friendly because they, they've never been hurt. They've never been, you know, nothing bad has ever happened to them from humans. And so now they're being, you know, brushed and petted while they're, they're waiting to be transported. So by the time they go to the next location, they're already friendly. It's It, it takes that little time to make these donkeys yeah. friendly. It, yeah, it's, it's really an incredible process. It sounds it's like... so rewarding. Yeah, and it sounds like their embrace of people under the right circumstance, it can be really rapid. I mean, it's interesting how quickly it sounds like, you know, those stories uh, basically suggest that they, that they build up uh, warmth and trust rather quickly where you might expect the other story to be true. Yes. And the ones that um, the government has caught where they are chasing them with helicopters and they are dragging them with ropes and things like that. Some of those guys take a long time to forget that. Yeah. And those are the ones that we were, we put out on sanctuary and the, the sanctuary donkeys get the same medical care. They, you know, they still get their vaccines and their dentals and their hoofs trimmed and all that. But in between that, they, they get to roam on, you know, a couple hundred acres of land and they have a sense of freedom, but they, you know, they still get the, the medical care, but they're just not ready to go into training to be adoptable yet. So we give them that sense of freedom. Yeah. So one thing that came up by way of email from one of our listeners a bit earlier when you made uh, reference to donkeys that have been beaten and, and just state that that put them in. This uh, listener is asking, why would anyone beat a donkey? That I can't answer because I, I, we, why would somebody not pay $35 to have a donkey's hoof trim? And we get donkeys that come in whose hooves have grown 18 inches and longer. Why would somebody do that when a hoof trim is only $35? Yeah. 
You know, so why would somebody beat a donkey? I don't know. Why would somebody throw beer bottles at donkey? We've had that happen too. You know, we I can't get into the mind of these people. I wish I could because then maybe I could fix it. I only I only see the outcome of it. I you know, we, we work with law enforcement all across the lower forty eight. We did a hoarding case in Inyo County, California. There was hundred and forty four donkeys, nine horses and seven mules. It cost us hundred and sixty thousand dollars by the time we were done. Inyo County couldn't afford to do the job. And they called us and asked if we could step in and help them, and we did. Why Why did it have to come to that? Why couldn't the, the, the person that was running that what used to be a rescue call us sooner? We could have sent veterinarians. We could have sent farriers and, and dentists and things like that. We would have. But, you know, I we, you can't get into people's heads. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I, 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 you know, I don't know why people are, are like that. Is it pride? I don't. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure with some of those situations where it gets into a hoarding situation, at least with other animals in comparable situations, I think it is pride. And I think people, it gets away from people and then they don't know what to do. And then they're embarrassed to ask for help. And uh, that's where it spirals out of control often. So Mark, one of the things you touched on that I did say I wanted to come back to is when you really take a look at the Peaceful Valley donkey rescue operation, it seems like almost like uh, to me, it struck me in, in the po- most positive sense, like a form of sort of like almost corporate franchising the way that donkeys move from one one of your facilities to another, all in service, I think, of, of getting them prepared and trained, as case may be, to be ideal prospects for adoption. Can you sort of walk me through the system, the, the the flow chart, as it were, like how how that works and where they move and why they move to the next place? Yes. Well, yeah, because I, I do have a background in business as a contractor for 20 years, um, we run this as a business. And I say that because we rescue with our heads, not our hearts. Um, that's why so many uh, rescues go under is you, you have to have the funds in order to to rescue properly. It's very expensive. We're supported 100% by private donation. We don't take any money from the government. And so the donkeys that we manage from the wild and even the ones we take from the Bureau of Land Management all come from California, Arizona, Nevada, those areas. And so those donkeys move first to our Arizona location. The males typically then come to Texas, and we do our castrations through Texas A&M's veterinary school. We sometimes involve other veterinary schools from Kansas, Colorado, things like that, which is a great program because those vet students learn how to do the procedures properly. Uh, then we do, um, those donkeys can then get sent on to our Virginia location. As they get trained, we have we employ trainers at all three of our locations. The donkeys have to be friendly. They have to walk on lead. They have to pick up all four hoes for trimming. And once they get straight A's on all those things, we grade them just like in school, A through F. But once they're a straight-A student, then they get transferred out to our satellite adoption center. And those are managed in each region. So we have a a west, central, and east region. Each region has a regional manager. Those regional managers operate out of the same standard operating procedures books, so they're all the same. Each region is the same. And those regional managers determine how many donkeys are going to go to each satellite. Some satellites will take 20, 25 donkeys. Some can only accommodate 10. But those... And then from there, they go out and they make their deliveries. So say Florida, we can deliver to Florida all year long. But in New England, those get their donkeys as soon as it thaws, and they got to make sure they adopt them out before the first three. So it's all very regional, as yeah. are the, um, the adoption requirements, because adequate shelter in Southern California is much different than it is in Pennsylvania. So 
that's all determined also by the regional managers. But yes, it is very, very corporate-esque because it's all about the well-being of the donkeys. And that's what's very important to us. So people will come out here to San Angelo and they see a thousand donkeys and they say, wow, that's really overwhelming. And it really isn't because we have one guy that's responsible for the herd, the herds of a hundred or better. But then we have the people that are responsible for the individuals and they're on the lookout for the individual donkey. So everything is for the well-being of the donkeys first, first and foremost. Um, we also on the lookout for the employees' well-being because they're working out there in 110 degree heat. It doesn't bother the donkeys. The donkeys are desert animals. Yeah. But as far as the people go, you know, we've, we've had two heat strokes this year, and we go to great lengths to protect our employees, but it still can catch up to you. No doubt. And when you say there, there's a guy who's looking out for the herds, and then there's someone looking out for kind of the individual donkeys, does that mean that there's sometimes just, I guess, inevitably by sheer numbers? certain donkeys that are having some sort of challenge or difficulty health-wise or otherwise that, that makes them kind of pop out from just being part of a herd where, where the person whose job that is to oversee the herd says, hey, this donkey needs something or this donkey's in trouble here. Yes, it could be uh, they might see a donkey limping. Uh, they might see a donkey not going to the food with the rest of them, so he's not eating. His ears might be down just not acting right. And so the vet techs will run. We, we employ here at San Angelo, and I think we have four vet techs on staff. So they rush out there and they, they act quickly because donkeys are so stoic, they don't like showing pain. And so we have to react quickly because you whatever it is with a donkey, you want to get on it as quickly as possible. And then we work here locally. We have four veterinarians that we call in as needed. So mm-hmm. we, we take medical cases very, very seriously. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. Let me let folks know this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Mark Myers, founder and executive director of Peaceful Valley Donkey Rescue, the largest donkey sanctuary in the U.S. Because today I'm broadcasting remotely, we're not taking uh, calls, but if you'd like to ask Mark a question or offer a comment, you're welcome to email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So you mentioned earlier in our conversation that there's a fairly widespread perception of donkeys as dumb or stubborn, which you say is totally not the case. People I know, and maybe it's just because of the circle I traveled in, seem to love donkeys, and they may not know a whole lot about them necessarily, but they they have positive feelings about them. So is this perception of the dumb or stubborn thing one of those just kind of self-perpetuating things where if people don't have an opportunity to spend any time uh, with a donkey or listening to a conversation about donkeys like this one, they just kind of assume that that, that general perception almost as a stereotype is accurate and then and they kind of embrace it themselves? Well, uh, Bugs Bunny turned into a donkey when he did something stupid. Uh, Pinocchio turned into a donkey when he was overindulgent. So these are sort of imprints as, you know, as you grow up, you remember these things. Um, what do we call each other when um, you see somebody on the road in front of you driving poorly, right? You call him a jackass. Mm. So why would you do that if it's something positive? Yeah. And so and most most people, especially in the city, have never had the opportunity to be around donkey. Now, when people come out here, we do tours in the San Angelo yard. And so when we have people come out here and be around a donkey for the very first time, they're blown away. Because the first donkeys they meet are my personal donkey. I have, well, I don't even know how many donkeys I have, (laughs) to be honest. Um, I probably have 25 donkeys that are my own. Some were um, passed on to me by a friend that passed away. And then I have Izzy, the very first donkey. He's still here with us. Wow. Uh, 
That's and a few great. others that, like uh, the very first baby that was ever born, uh, the Peaceful Valley Cowboy, he's here with us. And so there's a few, but they're all very friendly donkeys. And so when the visitors come, the first ones they get to meet are, are mine, as long, uh, along with Apple Cow, who's a Holstein cow that I bought the day she was born. Uh, they were going to, nobody wanted her because she was real sickly, so they were going to throw in a dumpster. So I gave mm-hmm. the guy $20 and took her home. But wow. she's out there. But, but, you know, people that have no knowledge of donkeys, and then they see that they're they're like big dogs. They're they're loving, they're loyal, they're 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 very very just precious animals. And so for the you know whatever perception they had melts away when they get around donkeys, and they just see that you know they're just like big dogs. Yeah. So the, whatever perception they're like, oh, I guess I was wrong about that. And from what you said earlier, too, it sounds like even ones that are uh, not as friendly as those ones, that, the 25 that you're describing that are your own sort of personal donkeys. But it sounds like it doesn't take that long for even just a regular donkey with some kindness showed to it and some consistency to come around and embrace a person that they didn't know a week or so ago. No, it really it really doesn't. Uh, we have some one of our sanctuaries is actually. Uh, about 10 miles away from here. And those people go out every day, spend time with the donkeys. And so usually within six months, we swap them out because those donkeys will be ready to go into our, our training program. So it really doesn't take that long at all. Yeah. They're they're highly intelligent animals and they know they're not going to get hurt. And so they, 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 they would much rather get the attention than not get the attention. For sure. They could. They crave attention. And so, what's it? What's a trait or detail about donkeys that over over all these years that you've spent with them that might surprise most of us? I mean, we're obviously talking about how they're they're smarter and friendlier and just not the basic stereotypical perception. But are there some other more minor traits that, that you've seen in donkeys over the years that might surprise people that just aren't steeped in the donkey world the way you are? Um, how protective they are. I was uh, I had one donkey named Rawhide who was used a, as a roping target. Cowboys will rope donkeys for practice because if they break a leg or they, they break a neck, it's cheaper than killing a calf. Mm. And so Rawhide came to me. He was scarred up and down his leg, around his neck, and he was a mess. He didn't like people. He didn't like horses. He would try to rip a horse's throat out if he got n- near a horse. And it took me months and months and months to get close to it. And finally I did. And so I had him out, and we were walking through the mountains. This is in um, northern Los Angeles County. And these two dogs came at us, these two wild dogs. And so I unclipped the lead rope I had on him so that he wouldn't get tangled up in it. And Rawhide attacked those two dogs and killed them and ran back, stood there and guarded me. That was the first time I had ever seen a donkey protect any. And I learned later that that's their nature. Farmers, ranchers will put female donkeys out with their, their herds of goats, sheep, and cows when they're calving because they will protect them from predators. That's their nature. They're very, very protective of whatever they bond with and they'll they'll bond with just about anything so a lot of people don't know that about them just how protective they get to whatever whatever it is they they love they'll protect yeah well it sounds like the uh once again the the image that a lot of people have of donkeys could not be further from the actual uh way they are and the way they behave and the way they think yes so I guess as you're saying this, people might be listening and thinking, well, what's, I mean, there's something like there's a definite protocol for the donkeys to be eligible for adoption, but what's required? I mean, can an individual person say, hey, uh, 
I've got some space here at my place and I'd love to have a donkey. I mean, what is there a criteria that involved for one or more uh, donkeys to be adopted through uh, Peaceful Valley? Uh, well, if you don't have a donkey already yet, you have to adopt two. They, they, okay. they like donkey companionship. Yeah. You have to have, like I said, adequate shelter. And that depends really on where you live. Um, you know, Florida is much different than, you know, like I said, New England. Yeah. So it's, it, it really depends on where you live as to what adequate shelter means. Uh, they have to have a little bit of space. They don't require a lot of space. And that also depends on the age of the donkey. If you're taking a, more of a senior donkey, donkeys can live a long time. Uh, the oldest one I'm aware of was 52 years old. Wow. Uh, I have one here. Job is about 45 years old. So they can live a long time. So older donkeys don't need as much space as younger donkeys. So that, that's sort of a sliding scale there, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be zoned for equine. Not not all just because you have, you know you have acreage. Not all places are zones. You have to make sure you are zoned for equine. But you know that's really about it. Yeah, uh, you have to be able to provide veterinary care, dental care, hoof care. So you have to make sure those things are available, and that those people will work on donkey. Not all farriers will work on donkeys. So you have to just make call the your farrier and let them know that you're getting donkeys that will pick up their feet and won't give them a hassle. Right, but, but that's, that's part of the it. training they've received through that whole Peaceful Valley program, right? Yes, exactly. And it, you know, and everything's right there on our website at donkeyrescue.org, and they can learn all about it. Yeah. So it sounds like pretty simple, but one thing I could see people getting tripped up on is, um, I mean, the adequate shelter thing is one thing, some space. But if they have some space and they have a couple acres, let's say, or whatever they have, but they might not necessarily know if it's zoned for equine. So I could see that being a bit of a factor that a lot of people might not examine carefully at first. And you should probably go back to look into that more closely. Yes. But I mean, if your neighbor has horses, then chances are you can have a donkey. Yeah. So, so far, everything we've talked about, especially given the multiple locations, sort of this kind of corporate that we've been calling it structure to all the different uh, training centers and sanctuaries, et cetera. How is Peaceful Valley funded? All when private it, donations. All private donations? I a Seriously? lot of time talking to people. So, yes, it's all private donations. So there's no grants or any other funding that Peaceful Valley receives? I, I write uh, usually about six grants that we get consistently every year. Uh, the rest, I don't have a lot of luck with. Usually, they'll tell us that they only fund horses, even though it says equine. They only fund horses. Uh, haven't had a lot of luck in the grant department. We've tried for years and years and years, and it just a waste of time. Wow. And is that back to the uh, poor perception that a lot of people seem to have of donkeys and that they're not getting maybe a fair shake for a certain grant that they otherwise probably should be? I think so, yeah. I really do. Yeah. So we, we do we we do pretty well in with private donations and that's kind of where it's always come from. Yeah, that that must be the case because I would think there's tremendous expenses involved in again just feeding and caring for and then the multiple facilities and the land involved and uh, it just seems like it's a high level operation, but I would think high expense operation as well. Yes, it's 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 enough to keep me up at night. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to deliver the highest level of care to these donkeys. But don't you also seem like you have a uh, sort of inclination to to kind of keep going and not just keep going as you are, but keep going bigger and broader and like, how can we do more? How about an additional facility? I mean, it seems like that's kind of part of your guiding principle in some ways over these years. Well, we have to get ahead of the Wildboro population. And once we once we can get ahead of it, then I think we can talk to the government 
about modifying their management plan. Part of us going into Death Valley and places like that was they had to approve our research permit. And our research is proving that their policies were based on bogus research, that the donkeys are a benefit to the landscape. They, they, they provide a lot of benefits to the landscape. And some of those benefits are the donkeys can dig up to four feet down for water. And that water is then available to other species. If we remove all the donkeys, where are they going to get water? Because the springs are grown up with vegetation that only the donkeys can get to. The donkeys will dig into those springs to get to that water that is then available to coyotes, mountain lions, bighorn sheep, all the other species. We keep removing all the donkeys, the water's gone. That's one benefit. We remove all the donkeys, the mountain lions are only going to go after bighorn sheep. We know for a fact the mountain lions are going after the donkeys too. So there's a lot of benefits to keeping some donkeys out there. And they're in the backcountry. They're not bothering people. So there's, there's a lot of things. And the donkeys have always been there. The government would like to think, oh, well, the donkeys were left here by the prospectors. No, the donkeys have been there since long before the Europeans ever made it that far. So the donkeys have always been in the landscape. So I, I think, yes, there's a lot of donkeys out there. We need to get the population under control, but the donkeys need to remain, and we just need to re keep ahead of the curve. So we need to get, get them under control, but once they're under control, we need to manage them properly. Australia, if you remember, before the pandemic, Australia was on fire. It was on fire to the, to the point where it put the koala bear on the endangered species list. Well, it was on fire because they killed millions of donkeys, horses, water buffalo, camel, all these things that were introduced species. Well, instead of managing them, they eradicated them. And then there was nothing left to manage the grass, and the grass burned. And once the grass burned, there was nothing to process the carbon, and that just contributed to climate change instead of being able to reverse climate change, as Australia always had. So wow. we need to manage the animals and not just simply remove them all. There's there's logical ways to go about these things, and governments don't always use logic. And it also sounds like partly as you become more and more steeped in this and knowledgeable about it, that that's partly what's driven the increasing number of facilities and, and land and whatever that, that to even try to get around this big of a problem that you do need that many more facilities, that you need that many millions of acres, that the only only real shot at, at trying to solve this and contain this is to, to go big. Yes. Yes. Go big or go home. Yeah. yeah. I think once we get ahead of the problem, like I said, then we can have a sit down and, and logically look at, okay, how many can the land really sustain? The Bureau of Land Management has said for the last 20 plus years that Arizona has 8,000 donkeys, but it can only sustain 1,800. Well, that is not logical. It's not logical because if that was true, then there would be a pile of 6,200 dead donkeys somewhere, and there's not. If that was logical, then Arizona would be completely stripped of all vegetation, and it's not. So therefore, the land can, can sustain 8,000 donkeys because it has, right? So yeah. obviously, we need to sit down and, and actually have a scientific conversation. So is, you know, what is what is the realistic number of how many donkeys the land can sustain? So that's why I want a seat at the table, and I'm going to earn that seat at the table by helping. And I'm that's what I'm doing is I'm helping. I'm surprised you don't already have a seat at the table after some 25 years of doing this and the kind of results and inroads well, that you've made. We, we, we just committed to taking another uh, 3,000 donkeys over the next five years from the Bureau of Land Management. Wow. 
So if that doesn't give me my seat, I, the way I look at it, nothing will. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would so think now we're, we're going to start making inroads. I, I don't like being political, but we're going to start working through congressmen. And uh, they wrote the 1971 Wild Horse and Burrow Act, um, which Nixon signed, that gave federal protection to the free roaming wild horses and burrows. And I was seven years old at the time. Well, maybe it's time we revisit that. Yeah, it might be time for a site update. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, my uh, my hat's off to you, Mark. We're sort of nearing the end of our time here together today, but I really appreciate being speaking with Mark Myers from Peaceful Valley Donkey Rescue. Again, the website is donkeyrescue.org. And as you've hopefully gotten a sense of just from this uh, conversation so far, sort of a lifelong commitment to helping donkeys on, on large, large, large scale and just keeps getting larger. And uh, Mark, I appreciate your time and I appreciate everything you've done for our donkey friends. Thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. In a moment, I'll talk with Lisa Ortiz, Director of Housing and Residence Life at Michigan's Ferris State University about the school's program allowing students to live in the dorms with their pets what would appear to be a wonderful way to help new college students living away from home for the first time to avoid or minimize feeling homesick, as well as other feelings of anxiety, depression, and isolation. We'll hear more about this new Ferris State pet program with Lisa Ortiz joins us in just a moment here on Talking Animals. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with Eddie Izzard doing a piece called Talk to the Animals in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. But, you know, uh, whales, they're intelligent. They do whale song. We don't know what it means, but I think that whales are traveling at 78. They're traveling at 78 speed. And if we take them up to 45 speed, we'll find they're actually going, I love you, baby. Yeah, they're DJs, you see? DJs of the sea. Because sound travels well in water, and they need a big PA to be a DJ, but they got their whole bodies. Yeah, it works, doesn't it? This next song is going out to all the goldfish down by the Azores. I love you, baby. So they're intelligent, and... Uh, and... Uh, well, and, and, and dolphins, they're intelligent, because we all saw the documentary Flipper. Well, dolphins came up going... Uh, What's that? What's that flip? Shanghai Chek is having trouble. Mart Tse Tung has taken over mainland China. Shanghai Chek has retired to Taiwan with some of his followers, where they will have a complete disregard for international copyright rules. Is that what you're saying, Flip, or do you want fish? Because every, every, every time, every episode of Flipper, he'd say the same thing, always having a problem. What's that? What? A boy trapped in a well, trapped in the water. Three boys, three boys fell out of a ship, out of a ship, a small ship, a big ship, two, two syllables, big ship, big ship, Sounds like, sounds like the deep, bit like the deep, bit of shark, jaws, da, 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 like that. What, two, what, gone with the wind, gone with the wind. Okay. And they were all like that. There was Skippy. Yeah. What's that, Skip? A boy trapped, trapped, drowning in a, in a desert, drowning in a desert, in a desert. Ill. He's in a sandy place. He, what, he's, he's, he's ill. He's got a bad leg. What? Gone with the wind. And Lassie as well. What, 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 you know, all oh, Lassie, Flippy, Skippy, all that E sound, except for Flipper. That was Eddie Izzard with a piece called Talk to the Animals in today's Comedy Corner, taken from his album Circle. Now it's time to speak with Lisa Ortiz, Director of Housing and Residence Life at Ferris State University, about their new program allowing students to live in the dorms with their pets. To fill us in, let's welcome Lisa Ortiz to Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Lisa. 
Good morning. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. And I absolutely love, love, love this idea. How did the idea for this program first surface? Well, uh, over the years, we've always allowed emotional support animals and service animals on our campus. And we started to hear from students more and more that they miss their pets from home. Um, their dog that they've had for 12 years, their cat that um, they got when they were 12 years old. And they were very vocal about wanting the opportunity to bring their animal with them. So this was our opportunity to, to really provide the students with that chance. Um, it's a pilot program for this year. So we're starting with one floor. Uh, and it's the opportunity for that student to bring what they consider to be their pet. So it sounds like it's just for this school year, and then you guys will what reevaluate whether to continue or, or even widen it out? We hope to be able to widen it out. Uh, we're looking, A, to make sure that the animal's health and well-being is taken care of while they're living with us. Yeah. B, that our facilities can help and support those students and the animals while they're living with us. And C, just to see how many people are truly interested in that. Sure. Well, what, what was the response, speaking of that, when you first announced the program, just generally, and of course, from dorm residents, what kind of response did the announcement of the program generate? The students were very excited. We filled up very quickly with a pet-friendly space. Uh, students that have animals at home that they wanted to bring were very quick to sign up for spaces. I'm getting uh, quite a bit of, are you sure you want to do this, from other institutions and other locations, just because it is so new and different. Um, But I have a lot of people watching to see if this works. And if we can make it work, I have a feeling other institutions will be following close behind. No doubt. And when you say see if this works, what is the criteria for determining success of the program? For me, again, it's to ensure the health of our animals while they're living with us, and then be the making sure that we can maintain the building uh, to the standards that we have with the amount of animals here. So far, every animal owner has been very responsible. Uh, they've been meeting our guidelines, which include picking up waste, making sure the animal is underneath their control, and then caging their animals when they are not in the room. And so our students are being very responsible. And as long as this continues throughout the year, I, I look forward to expanding it. That's great. And again, I think school only started uh, Monday of this week, but I, I assume with orientation and other things, the, the residents have been there for at least, what, a couple weeks or so or more? About a week. Oh, just about a week. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it seems like it's going well. And have there been any unfortunate developments or incidents that popped up so far? Not at all. Uh, we have had questions about allergies in the building. Um, and that's part of the reason we're just starting it in one building and hoping to expand in the same building. So our students who do have allergies can make the decision not to live here. Um, we did have uh, one of our students who was originally supposed to bring a different animal bring a snake. So that's our first snake in the building, um, which is not my favorite animal, but obviously that student believe it wants it as his pet. So good for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that one of the questions I, that reminds me of that I was going to ask is, is if there's a limit on either the size or breed or even species uh, for this pilot program. Um, the only real limit we have is, two. you must have had at least a six-month relationship with the animal. Okay. So people aren't just getting puppies and kittens um, straight out. You need to have that six-month relationship. Along with that, uh, there is no live feed of any animal. So if you own a snake or a lizard that needs um, crickets or mice to eat, it has to be frozen. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Okay. And is that snake that you just mentioned that was kind of unexpected, the only snake on the uh, in the dorm floor so far? Yes. Everything else is dogs and cats. Okay. 
cool. Well, that'll be really interesting. And you mentioned other institutions are saying, hey, are you sure about this? But do you know of any others that that are already conducting a, a program at all like yours? Uh, we have a couple. Um, I did not benchmark before I made the decision to do this, but there's one other institution in the state of Michigan, uh, Lake Superior State, that does allow animals on a smaller scale. Along with that, uh, another institution in the state of Michigan allows in their upper class housing um, cats. I see, but no, nothing so far quite like this uh, to this degree, it sounds like. Not that I've heard, but again... I'm sure it's out there. It just uh, hasn't received that much attention thus far. Yeah. Well, I'll be very interested to uh, maybe check back with you at the end of the school year and see uh, how it all went and if you're continuing and indeed if you're expanding. So how how close to the end of the school year will you kind of evaluate? Because I, I would think that there'd be something to be said for saying, hey, we're going to continue this next year and much less we're going to expand it to additional floors or whatever. So do you have kind of a timetable for that uh, reassessment? We will need to make the decision by December on whether or not we're going to continue it for the next academic year. Oh, okay. Our contracting starts for the next year. I see. And quite frankly, we already have um, students that are seniors in high school asking about it. So when they come to Ferris, uh, they're wondering if they could bring their animal next year. Wow. Word is out and then some. Jeez. That's but I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lisa, this is a terrific, I could say, I love this idea. And I think, again, it helps so many students that do struggle with homesickness and other issues, uh, really kind of keep those at bay. And uh, so thanks for joining us on Talking Animals and good luck. And maybe we'll check back with you to see how things went in a few months. Sounds like a plan. Okay, thank you again. Coming up on WMF, it's Slice of Life, the wonderful new show hosted by Randy Zimmerman. After that, we shift back to music programming with Jim Bannon holding forth from one to three followed by Robin and Cassie from 3 to 6. And our terrific Wednesday night block of the Latin music kicks in. Meanwhile, on this show is at the moment for as the prize for naming that animal tune, I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault. The first person who emails, Duncan at WMNF.org. No calls today, just email, and correctly identifies this animal song. It's named that animal tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. All right, maybe we'll hold that for next next week because we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I'd like to again thank Greg Bowers for his tremendous production assistance today. Much appreciated. I'll be back next Wednesday, joined by Glenn Hatchell for another edition of Ask the Trainer, where you can call or write in and ask Glenn questions about your dogs or cats' behavior or training. So I hope we'll see you then. And uh, meanwhile, visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives and other information, links to social media and all kinds of other stuff. So this is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I'm closing today's show with something Johnny Cakes and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. So fittingly enough, the donkey song on WMNF. Thanks again. We'll see you next Wednesday.